0: Would have you join me in the book of Judges again. We're in chapter 6. Going to pick up the account of Gideon in verse 36 and trace his story all the way through the end of chapter 8. I'm going to give this sermon a title. I don't often do that, but the title is The Weakness of the Mighty Man. And what we're going to see here this morning is Gideon displaying both his greatness and his weakness, and really what we see is the greatness of God through the weakness of this man, Gideon. And just as with Barak, all of our understanding of Gideon must be submitted to the writer of the Hebrews and his interpretation of Gideon writing under inspiration of the spirit. This is what he says again. We've referenced to this verse several times out of Hebrews 11 verses 32 through 34. When he says there, what more shall I say? The time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah of David, Samuel, the prophets And these words next in verse 33 seem to particularly relate to Gideon, at least. Who through faith subdued kingdoms. Gideon is a complex character in Scripture. And when I call him a character, you understand he was a real person. These things really happened. This is not make-believe. This is not fairy tale. This is biblical, redemptive history. And as complex as he is, there is much in him to be admired, much in him even to be emulated. But there is also much to question, much to learn from. The greatest thing that we can do as we observe Gideon is to see how the Lord dealt with him and how the Lord used him to accomplish his purposes. As with all of these judges, as with any person in the scriptures, our, our greatest learning comes from seeing God's interaction with them. And I've said this from the beginning. We don't want to come away from this and say, go be like Gideon or go be like Deborah or go be like Barak or Samson. We want to come away from this learning something else about the character and the nature of God. Submit ourselves to that and be thankful for what he has taught us in this book of Judges. Last week, the beginning of the story of Gideon, we saw what necessitated his arrival onto the scene. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. We witnessed the angel of the Lord coming to Gideon as he was threshing out wheat in the winepress and speaking to him and calling him to this ministry, and even referring to him there as a mighty man of valor. I want to point your attention to one verse out of chapter 6, and this is where we'll begin, where we'll take up the story of Gideon this morning. This is just after he has destroyed the altar of Baal, after he had hacked it into pieces. And I'll remind you that's what his name means, Gideon literally to hack. After he cuts down this altar and is defended by his father after the townspeople wanted to execute him, we read this in verse 34. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The Hebrew literally reads, the Spirit of the Lord put on Gideon that seems to capture what is taking place here. The spirit of the Lord taking this man, plucking him from obscurity. Gideon knew that. That was his first rebuttal against the calling of the Lord. He doesn't phrase it like this, but we would use the terms, who am I? I'm nobody. Why are you calling me to this? And so the Spirit of the Lord takes Gideon and literally puts him on and uses him for his own glory. Now, we've said, I've said already, Gideon is very complex. There are great heights of faith. No doubt why he is mentioned in Hebrews 11, but there are also very great lows. We're going to see them on full display This morning, and we back away from Gideon, and we can summarize him in this way Gideon, like all, was a flawed man whom God used. Gideon was a flawed man. He had weaknesses, he sinned, yet God used him. And what does that do? It highlights the grace of God in his life and in our own. It's interesting as we read through some of this this morning that in his best moments the writer of Judges, the historian here refers to the covenant name of God Yahweh. In his lowest, in Gideon's worst and lowest moments the reference is changed to the more generic name of God in Hebrew, Elohim. Perhaps this is a a picture in words to show us Gideon's waxing and waning in faith. At moments, he is committed man of faith, the mighty man of valor, trusting in Yahweh, his covenant God. At other moments, he is cowering in fear, referencing the Lord as, in the generic name, Elohim. The scriptures do not paint over the failure and sin of this man, just like the scriptures did not paint over the failure and sin of great men like David, the great king. For all of his accomplishments, his failure and sin are on full display in the scriptures. And thankfully, we also have on full display his great repentance in Psalm 51 and recorded in other places as well. So I want you to begin with me here. We're going to first see the weakness of this mighty man. Let me pray before we get involved in the end of chapter six. Father, we come to you this morning and Lord, we confess, I confess, we need help to rightly understand this man, Gideon, and how you used him for your own glory. Lord, we want to see his great faith. we want to be warned by his failure and his fall into sin. Lord, we're encouraged by the grace that you dispensed to him time and time again, proving that your grace is free and unmerited. There's nothing in this man, nothing in any of us, that secures your work of grace. So, Father, help us above all to see that your grace is indeed free. And that there is nothing that we can do initially to earn it, there is nothing that we can do thereafter to keep it. All is of grace. May that be what you impress upon our hearts the most as we consider this man again. We pray for help and ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verses 36 of chapter 6 all the way through the 35th verse of chapter 8 detail for us a list of the weaknesses of the one the Lord called the mighty man. I'm going to run through them very quickly. First, by his own admission, he is a man of obscurity. He is a nobody. And in that sense, he really represents us all. But he also is one who operates based many times out of fear and doubt and lacking of faith. He questioned the calling of the Lord initially, He will question again the calling of the Lord by his infamous laying out the fleece. We're going to see that here very shortly. Several points in this story, he exhibits someone who is not a mighty man of valor at all. He exhibits someone who is cowering in fear. All of this proves to us the principle that we find in Scripture, most notably in 2 Corinthians 12, That the grace of God is sufficient and his strength is made perfect in weakness. Weakness is not something that we like to be exposed in our life. We always tend in the other direction and that is to exude strength at every turn. Partly because we desire to be strong in and of ourselves, we certainly want to be seen as people of strong faith by everyone else. But yet over and over again, like Gideon, we prove to ourselves before the Lord and very often before others that we are just as weak as he, just as prone to fall into doubt and fear and questioning what the Lord is doing with us in our lives. Why is he showing grace to me at all? Have you ever ever asked any of those kinds of questions? What did the Lord see in me? Nothing. But his own grace, his own strength, his own power working in you. That would be how we can summarize this in the case of Gideon. So we come now to verse 36 and the whole issue of Gideon and his fleece. From my very earliest memories of being in Sunday school, This always played a prominent place in the life of a young person in Sunday school. The issue of Gideon and his fleece. Is it a positive thing? Is it a negative thing? Well, let's read it in verse 36. After, mind you, the Spirit of the Lord had come upon him, he said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So don't miss those words. Very often we approach this issue of the fleece by saying this is Gideon's attempt to discern the will of God. No, it's not. Gideon knows full well what the will of God is and he admits it right here. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So the issue of what God will do is settled. So we continue here in verse 37. He says, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry all on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. Verse 38, and it was so. When he arose the next morning, he squeezed the fleece together. He wrung the dew out of the fleece. And this is not a superfluous detail, I don't suppose. There was a whole bowl full of water. There wasn't just a little moisture in the fleece. It was completely saturated. So it wasn't enough for Gideon. Verse 39, Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test I pray just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And the God and God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. How do we understand this action of Gideon? Is this overtly sinful? And presumptuous on his part. As many take it. Or is it as one person has said. This is simply his being cautious. Wanting to have reiterated for him. Exactly what God wants him to do. And I suppose we can all really. If we let down our defenses. We can all really relate to Gideon right here. Lord I really want to know. No, I I really want to know. I really, really want to know what you would have me do. And notice what doesn't often get spoken of in this account is how patient God is with this man. And here I'm quoting Daniel Block. He says, the remarkable thing is that God actually responds to the tests of Gideon. God is more anxious to deliver Israel than he is to quibble with this man's semi-pagan notions of deity. I think he hits the nail on the head. God is more willing and anxious to deliver Israel than he is to right all of the wrong thinking here with Gideon. So Gideon requests a wet fleece, the fleece is wet. He requests a dry fleece, the fleece is dry. Now he's prepared in his own heart and in his own mind to move out and do what God had required of him. So, when we look at this issue of the fleece, I think we can come down on this. This is an issue of his caution, but even more so, it is an issue of God's great patience and long-suffering, and his kind dealing with one he has called into his service, one that he has called into himself. And much has been said about weakness already, but the second point that I want you to see with me, not only does the Lord in Scripture reveal to us that his power is perfected in weakness, very often he insists on weakness. Very often he insists on what some have called absurdity, that which makes absolutely no sense. And just think how often this comes up in the scripture. Think about the young shepherd David with five stones gathered out of the brook and the giant Goliath. That is nothing more than God insisting on weakness and acting through it. The same we'll see later in the book of Judges with Samson and the jawbone and the thousand men that were slain. That is nothing more than God insisting on his weakness and then his choosing to work through the weakness. What about the whole issue of the fall of Jericho and marching around seven times, blowing trumpets and yelling? That is nothing more than God insisting upon weakness and then working through it. What we see very next is God insisting that the army of Israel be reduced to such a number that there is no mistaking of whom the glory is due, of to whom the glory is due. It's due to the Lord. This is also true in the New Testament. Think about Paul, Saul of Tarsus. He is reduced by the great minds and the men of Athens to one who was a little seed picker. Of no significance whatsoever. And yet, he is the one to whom the Lord would reveal great and mighty truths and use to record them in Scripture for us. And then I suppose the ultimate display is to see one man clothed in weakness, clothed in humility, clothed in shame, hanging upon a cross, bleeding, dying. And God working powerfully through that weakness to save an innumerable multitude. So if you're sitting here this morning and you think, I'm too insignificant, I'm too weak, I'm too this, I'm too that to use. that God could never do anything with me. then you're really in a good spot. If you're here this morning, on the other hand, thinking, why isn't God using me? Look at what all I have to offer. Then you're not in a good spot at all. And the Lord may very well humble us if we approach Him in that way. So, this is another one of the great accounts that we know well with Gideon, but I want to point out a few things that we might often overlook. We're beginning here in chapter 7, and this is where Gideon is carrying out his responsibility before the Lord to subdue the Midianites fully. And the Lord says to him in the second verse, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Now don't miss the reasoning. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So this is contrary to the way that we think. We say there is safety in numbers. And to have an army numbering in the multitude of thousands to go out and to do battle, we would say, bodes very well for us. But in the economy of God and in the wisdom of God, God knowing the heart of man as he does, knowing that we are glory-seeking creatures, and to answer the question of Malachi, will a man rob God? The answer is absolutely we will rob him of the glory that is due only him. So the Lord does some humbling here. He is insisting upon weakness so that there will be no question as to whom the glory is due. So this, he does two things with this great army that has amassed itself to Gideon. First of all, he says, Proclaim in the hearing of the people, Whoever is fearful and afraid... Literally, the word is whoever is trembling. And if you go back to verse 1, that's the name of the place where they are, the well of Herod. And Herod there means trembling. So there are a lot of men shaking in their boots here. And the Lord says, whoever is trembling and afraid, let him turn and depart at once. And notice the response, 22,000 of the people returned, 10,000 remained. That's not weak enough. You can imagine, put yourself in Gideon's shoes and the 10,000 men who were left to see 22,000 depart in their mind, probably thinking, now what in the world are we going to do? But the Lord says, you're not yet weak enough. So the next way that he will Reduce is with the issue of bringing them down to the water and testing them there. How they would choose to drink one laps like a dog. The other takes water with his hand, brings it up. The end of this in verse 7 is that there were only 300 who did not lap the water like a dog. And verse seven says, the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. Remember he said, I'm going to do this in a way so that there is no question whose hand has saved. Now he is saying, I will save you by these 300 men and deliver the Midianites into your hand. One Bit of information here that we'll see later. The Midianites numbered innumerable, like locusts. They could not be counted, and really, the initial army that Gideon had amassed would have been way outmanned and outnumbered. And so, it just gets more and more to the logical mind absurd that God would reduce this band of men down to three hundred. And even in this, after the Lord speaks directly and says, I will save you, that the Lord again dispenses mercy to Gideon. After commanding him in verse 9, arise, go down against the camp, I have delivered it into your hand. Verse 10, but if you are afraid, if you're fearful, if you're just like those 22,000 that that left, but yet you did have enough courage to at least stay. If you are fearful, here's what I'm going to do for you. Go down with your servant, and I want you to hear what they say, even though they number as locusts, and their camels are without number, and as the sand by the seashore in multitude. So down goes Gideon and his servant, and they overhear a conversation. They overhear the interpretation of a dream. The interpretation of the dream is that Gideon indeed will come and destroy the Midianites. And I'm paraphrasing that. And in verse 15, we see Gideon at a high point. Gideon heard the telling of the dream, its interpretation, and he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. And in verse 17, he says, Look at me, watch me, and do likewise. When I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also shall blow the trumpet on every side of the whole camp and say, The sword of the Lord. I stopped short there intentionally. What else does he say? The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Now, I can't say for certain But I have great speculation that those last three words were of his own addition. And I say that based upon his actions after this battle. The Lord said, I'm going to reduce your army so that I receive the glory. Even after a test of his faith and after hearing the interpretation of the dream, having God's word directly to him Gideon says, when we get into the camp, do like I do. Declare the sword of the Lord and, yes, of Gideon as well. So Gideon and his 300 men came to the outpost of the camp. They had concealed lanterns and pitchers. They get in the midst of the camp at midnight. They break the pitchers, show the lamps, make a lot of noise and commotion, blow on trumpets, And it so confuses the Midianite army that they, in essence, draw swords and kill one another. And really, Gideon's sword did nothing, did it? It was indeed the sword of the Lord only. But he then takes off and pursues the Midianites. And he captures Oreb and Zeb, These two kings or princes of the Midianites. He pursues them, kills them, takes off their heads and uses them as trophies, so to speak. And then he is confronted by the Ephraimites. And I'll paraphrase this part of this. They approach him and say, why didn't you let us in on this? And he sort of compromises with them. He flatters them. And they accept the flattery, and then all is well between them. Gideon further pursues the Midianites until he completely annihilates them. And here he is again at one of his highest points, but it doesn't take long for him to fall greatly. In verse 22 of chapter 8. The men of Israel said to Gideon. Rule over us. Both you and your son. And your grandson also. Don't miss this. For you. Have delivered us. From the hand of Midian. They interpreted the sword of the Lord. And of Gideon. They only heard apparently. The last part of that. The sword of Gideon. And they attribute to him this great deliverance. Now, Gideon initially makes a great response to this. But we have to keep reading to get the full effect. Initially, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son, the Lord, shall rule over you. That sounds good and right because it is. He at least says the right things here. And if it weren't for the next sentence, we would be left to think that Gideon really didn't mean anything when he said the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. No, I will not rule over you as king. The Lord is ruling over you. But the very next sentence, Gideon said to them, I'm not going to rule over you, but I would like to make a request of you. That each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we'll gladly give them. They spread out a garment. Each man threw in his earrings from his plunder. The weight of the gold that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Some have done the math there and said this equates to just under 50 pounds, around 45 pounds of gold. Besides precious ornaments, pendants, and the robes which were on the kings of Midian, the chains around the camel's necks, what does Gideon do with all of this gold? This is to be equated with the greatness of David's fall with Bathsheba. Here is the not positive weakness of the man of valor this is the lowest of his sinfulness before God but yet in grace he's still in Hebrews 11 this is what he does what he does Gideon made it into an ephod I know what was an ephod an ephod was a garment it was high priestly attire It had inner pockets, and in the inner pockets were the mysterious Urim and Thummim that the high priest would consult as to get direction from the Lord. Some see this as just an image of some type. I don't know that it really matters how we interpret what this is. We just know that Gideon made it and set it up in his city, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. So here is the man that God used to tear down the altar of Baal to deliver his people from the Midianite oppression. And what does he do? He goes right back and he sets the altar back up again. Can you see the lowest of the low here with Gideon? The last detail here is it became a Snare to Gideon. The word snare here literally translated a hook in the nose. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Even mighty men, we might say especially mighty men, are prone to fall and fall greatly. the desire for glory. Remember how Gideon first refused his calling by saying, I'm nobody. I'm the least in my father's house. But by the end of God using him, by the time it's through, Gideon is setting up a false, fake God. And note this, leading in its worship. He set it up All of Israel played the harlot. And for the first time, idolatry is officially sponsored by a leader of the nation. That's the unique point. Before, what we had read is the people were led into idolatry by the pagan nations around them. But this time, it's the one selected of God to lead them that ushers them back into idol worship. It just heightens The scandal. So as we move on with this, Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Again, what we see in verses 28 is the grace of God. He continued to some degree mysteriously to bless this man who was an instrument in his own hand but also an instrument to lead his people astray again so to finish off with Gideon in verse 29 Jerobo that's his some would say his given name Gideon his nickname I don't know what the case is Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. The interesting thing here is the word dwelt. This word can also be translated to rule. This may be conjecture, but some see that Gideon did indeed, though not officially, kind of underhandedly, set himself up as a, quote, king in his own house. He certainly lived the kingly lifestyle. In verse 30, he had 70 sons and many wives. A concubine in Shechem also bore him a son who would be a great grief to him in chapter 9, Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Abizorites. Now notice this. Even though Gideon had made the ephod, set up the ephod, led in its worship, mysteriously somehow there was still some restraint that he held over the people. Because it was not until he was officially and actually dead, in verse 33, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals. And made Baal Beareth their god. Notice the sad ending of this mighty man of valor. The children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jeroboam Gideon in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. So just as obscurely as he came onto the scene, he goes off of the scene. So we're finished with his story. I want to make a few applications before I close. Sometimes great men and great women can be a great disappointment. Probably in your life, you've had someone that you highly esteemed in the faith and they had a disastrous fall of some kind. What does this teach us? It teaches us to set our eyes on Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Thankfully, the Lord does put in our paths faithful men and women to learn from, to emulate, but we have to know that they are prone to fall. Sometimes great people, in our eyes, great, can be a great disappointment. And if we had set Gideon up and just studied all of the positive things about him and so built him up in our minds, how disappointed would we be to read of his failure? But yet what we find in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9 they're all mixed in there together. He has a good moment followed by a bad, a couple of good, a bad. And when we compare him to the greatest judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, then what does it do? It exalts Christ and shows the weakness of men. The second point of application If the Lord allows us to participate in the advancement of the kingdom of God at all, it must be all of grace. If we as men and women ever do anything that can be attributed to the advancing of the kingdom of God, then we must settle it in our hearts and minds. To God be the glory, great things He hath done. And of grace, He has let me in some small way participate in it and take none of the glory for our own. A third point of application, nothing is impossible with God. How often do we say that? Jesus would reiterate that with his conversation with Nicodemus, but Really, he is reiterating Zechariah, the prophet, in chapter 4 and verse 6 when he responds to Zerubbabel and says, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Nothing is impossible with him. And then a fourth point. Many times the greatest obstacle to the work of God among his people is a faithless person or group of people in their midst. That has proven to be so here with Gideon. And then lastly, we must guard against the constant temptation to rob God of his glory. We must guard against it with everything that we have. I'll take you back to chapter 7 and verse 2 where the Lord says, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. It's fitting the way the Lord works things and puts things together that we're coming to the Lord's table this morning. And as we approach the table, I want to remind you of Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8 and 9. This is a a reminder of one of the great truths concerning our God when he says in verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another. Nor my praise to carved images. That really settles the whole issue of Gideon, the 300 men, the ephod. The reminder that God is jealous of his people and he is jealous of his own glory. And so when we make the equation or when we transfer this over into the realm of our own salvation, coming to the Lord's table is a good reminder, a necessary, needful, constant reminder. That's why we come to the table as often as we do. The Scriptures don't tell us how often. It just says, as oft as you do this. But it is a reminder that the Lord will not share His glory with another. There is no one else to whom your salvation can be attributed than to the Lord Jesus Christ. The shed blood and broken body of Jesus is alone sufficient. You and I can take no credit at all for our salvation. The broken body and shed blood of Jesus alone has accomplished it. There is no other to whom we look. And what a great display the Lord has given. And I remind you, the Lord's Supper is not a clever invention of the church. It is an institution of Jesus Christ himself. On the same night he was betrayed... He took bread, blessed and broke it. And in keeping with this whole theme this morning of power being displayed through weakness, I will have you again in your own sanctified mind's eye to consider the captain of your salvation hanging in great weakness on the cross of Calvary but take heart in Christ's greatest moment of physical weakness the greatest power of God was on display that's all the strange happenings at Calvary darkness in the middle of the day, the graves opening, all of those strange things. Why? Because behind the scenes, if you will, there was a real power struggle. That's why the scriptures tell us, and we sing so often words that would relate to Christ defeated death and hell, the devil. And so this morning... with no fanfare we come to these elements and we remember the weakness the physical weakness of our Savior yet the most powerful display of God through that weakness and then the principle upon which it is all built out of Second Corinthians 12 giving answer to Paul Paul said he said to me My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. (laughs) What was Paul's response? I will most gladly boast in my infirmities, in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If you're keenly aware of your weakness, thank God. If you're keenly aware of your weakness before him, praise him for humbling you and making you aware that you have been a recipient of his grace. Let me pray and then I'll ask Carlos and the men to come. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word to instruct us. We thank you for your word that in every turn guides us teaches us how to think rightly Lord how closely we can relate ourselves to Gideon how much like him we really are so Father we pray that you would display the beauties and the glories of your son our Savior that as we partake of these elements and carry out this ordinance again Lord, that it would have real meaning that it would not just be something that we are doing once more Lord help us as we take the cup and the bread to discern the Lord's body and to know the great cost that he paid for us the great weakness that he so gladly took upon himself, how he humbled himself not considering equality with God to be a thing to be grasped and held on to, willingly setting aside all of the glory that he had shared with you, his Father, throughout all eternity, setting it aside and coming to earth entering into his own creation, subjecting himself to his own law to accomplish our redemption. Hallelujah. What a Savior that you have given to us. Help us to worship him rightly. Help us to exalt him. Help us in all things to give him the preeminence for he alone is worthy. We're thankful to be numbered Amongst those that he is leading to glory. We're thankful to know the broken, bruised, bloodied Jesus Christ as the captain of our salvation. We're thankful to be able with eyes of faith to cast our gaze upon him again. And know that he is both the author and the finisher of our faith. That work which he has begun in us, he will complete We're thankful for his keeping hand. We are thankful that he has told us he will not leave us orphans but will return. We are thankful that you have given your spirit to come alongside of us and help us in times of great weakness. So, Father, we pray and ask that in the observance of this ordinance, that you would receive all the glory for your plan of salvation, that Christ would receive all of the glory for executing it, and that the Spirit of God would receive all the glory for making perfect application of it to our hearts and to our minds. We pray, asking all of these things in the name of Jesus.